Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is What Do Congressional Committees Do? My guest is Dr. Maya Kornberg. She's a political scientist in the Elections and Government Program at the Brennan Center. Dr. Kornberg leads the center's work related to information and disinformation in politics, Congress, and money in politics. Maya also is the author of Inside Congressional Committees, Function and Dysfunction in the Legislative Process. All of that makes her the perfect person to ask the question, what do congressional committees do? Dr. Kornberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Since its earliest days, more than two centuries ago, each chamber of Congress has had committees and used them for lawmaking and oversight and who knows what else. Why? Why committees? So as you noted, committees have been essential institutions in Congress really since its inception. And one of the reasons for this is because Congress is a big organization with an enormous number of issues to handle. And so committees act as sub-organizations that can help it to perform specific duties. And Congress delegates work really through its committees. And so they also serve as indicators uh, of how Congress is apportioning responsibility and resources. Um, And I'd also know that in terms of power within the chambers, committees help to decentralize power and encourage and give space to more legislators from both parties to be active participants in the policymaking process. You note in the book that committees have four what you call core functions, deliberation, education, theater, and personal connection. What do you mean by these terms? So these are really the core functions that legislative scholars have identified as key roles of committees in general in legislatures. So first and foremost, scholars identify committees as a deliberative forum within Congress. Uh, Woodrow Wilson even once wrote that, quote, the House virtually both deliberates and legislates in small section. It delegates not only its legislative, but also its deliberative functions to standing committees. Um, And what does deliberation mean? Well, actually, as as you and your co-authors touch on in Congress Overwhelmed, deliberation is really about weighing the different aspects of a question and reasoning through the different causes and consequences. So this is really a crucial part, obviously, of any policy formulation and something that committees handle in Congress. Committees are also traditionally where research is brought in and technical learning takes place. And that's what I mean by education. So Congress is a body in which many lawmakers have to legislate on specialized topics that they don't have any training in. And committees allow them space to learn. And they are a place where lawmakers gather information and um, educate themselves about specific policy areas. 
Committees are also one of the major bipartisan institutions in an increasingly partisan Congress. And so they form a space for members of Congress to cultivate personal relationships with each other and with the witnesses. Um, members from both parties come together on a regular basis in committees for hearings and other regular work. And this forms a space then for potential personal connection between members. So in my book, I tell the story um, of a particularly uh, notable friendship that came from a committee, um, and that is uh, the friendship between longtime Senator Dick Lugar, whom I interviewed before he passed away in 2019, and then Senator Barack Obama. Republican uh, Senator Lugar told me that Barack Obama was frequently one of the only members left in the committee when um, when Senator Lugar was chairing and would sit there and ask questions and be engaged. And also as a result of their joint membership in the committee, they went on several trips together, what's known as CODELs or congressional delegations, and were really able to maintain a, a friendship and a fruitful working relationship across party lines that originated in, uh, in their joint membership in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, for uh, many years after. So that's what I mean by personal connection. And then finally, committees can act as what uh, Woodrow Wilson termed the theater of debate upon legislation. Uh, and one of the staffers that I interviewed in the book explained that sometimes, quote, the purpose of a hearing is to give a public forum to discussions that largely happen behind closed doors. So this public function of committees allows members to publicize issues, and it's really a, a public-facing function, and it can help them to mobilize support also uh, for different policy issues that they might be working on. So these four functions, deliberation, education, personal connection, and theater, are core universal functions of committees. And my book then explores under what conditions each of these functions might be most likely in Congress today. Since you teed up the question nicely, the committees of today, are they still doing all four of these things? Deliberating, education, theater, personal connection. And, and does it vary? Does the mix, the kind of cocktail of these four functions change from committee to committee? As I note in, in the book, there's certain parameters that lead a, a hearing or a committee to perhaps be more likely to fulfill different functions. Today, after uh, a, a series of developments over the past several decades, committees are by and large less autonomous, less specialized, um, and less deliberative than they once were as a result of decades of um, having staff cut, um, having their power uh, taken away um, and usurped by party leadership. Um, but still, uh, committees can serve these spaces. I note in the book that in particular, um, the uh, the educational platform of committees can be most likely, and this might seem counterintuitive, the further away you are from a vote or from talking about a specific piece of legislation. Um, so I, I spoke to, to members who, who explained that the closer you are to a vote, the more likely you are to descend into partisan kind of tribal warfare. But in terms of uh, what I call agenda setting and general education about topics, and this is really important because these members of Congress still need to be legislating about all of these very specialized topics, committees can still serve um, this kind of general education um, 
this general education process. I tell the story, for example, in the book of the um, genetic engineering hearing in 2015. This was at the very beginning of genetic engineering uh, science and, um, and development of that science in the United States. And members uh, really talked about this hearing as one in which at the very beginning of this policy issue becoming something that they would need to regulate and fund and legislate about, they were able to learn about this because it had not yet been colored by partisanship um, in the way that many issues are. Um, and I also note in the book that personal connection, um, again, can occur, but also under specific circumstances. As we know, Congress is becoming increasingly partisan and frequently uh, the only time that members have to connect with each other is uh, within the rancorous halls of Congress because many of them don't live in Washington, um, whereas before the, the mid-90s or so, uh, they did and they, and they had plenty of opportunities to form personal connections. So one of the things I talk about in the book are opportunities like field hearings, like congressional delegation trips that committees facilitate that allow members to socialize with each other and form personal connections outside of Congress. Um, so again, uh, these kinds of hearings and committee work um, might allow for more personal connection than we see in kind of traditional kind of scripted and, and partisan hearings within the halls of Congress. And by the same token, the committee hearings that we see in Congress with all the cameras all teed up um, might actually be the, the, the place for more theater. But when they're out on the road, um, I talk about, for example, in the book, the example of the Agriculture Committee's Farm Bill listening tour. When they're out on the road just listening to farmers, there, there might be more space for actual interaction and less theater. So again, in, in the book, I, I explore when each of these is most likely, arguing that they all take place in Congress, but we can learn from when they take place in order to, to think through what reforms can help uh, facilitate more of these different functions in, in Congress today. Yes. And, you know, a point you make very clearly in the book is that hearings have different purposes. You know, there are some times where it is just exploring an issue and they're digging in and the hearing is probably going to be you know, rather drab, perhaps with uh, lots of, you know, experts coming and presenting data and this, that and the other. In other instances, the point is to call attention to something, to get the media's attention, to say, hey, here's a here's a thing that everybody should be asking questions about and perhaps uh, wagging fingers in shame. So what you get is going to depend on kind of what the ultimate outcomes are. Now, you mentioned personal connection, and this this was a really fascinating part of the book. Personal connection, with that comes trust. And ultimately, for legislature to work, to be able to build a majority, to be able to create a piece of legislation, there's got to be some trust between individuals so that they can collaborate, create a shared work project, and move it through the chamber and deal with the resistance that's inevitably going to come, whether it's media criticism or criticism from with their own party or the other party. You talked firsthand with people who work on committees. It seems to me that the personal connections are like the secret sauce for making it work. Did I get that right? Yeah. So I talk a lot about the crucial importance of the relationship specifically between committee leadership 
and between their respective staffs, the minority and the majority staff, in in crafting hearings. And in my interviews with staff and with members, it became very clear to me that there are the formal rules, but then there's also uh, the informal norms that in many cases trump formal rules because of the importance of personal relationships. So when uh, when the minority and the majority staff um, have a good relationship and when the topic of the hearing is perhaps more uh, bipartisan, then there is space to even create uh, joint witness lists and to think together about creating a witness panel that, that exposes kind of the different aspects of an issue and the different voices um, that there are to hear from on an issue. Uh, On the other hand, in the absence of good personal relationships, the minority gets the most kind of the minimal notice that the hearing is happening. And they're one witness which the minority is always entitled to. And I also show by looking at kind of what I call balance scores, that hearings in which the ranking member and the chair are closer to each other ideologically. I use DW nominate scores to look at that, um, might yield more balanced hearings. And I create this methodology for creating uh, balanced scores in the book, uh, which are a way of measuring how balanced a witness panel is, how many witnesses are speaking for or against a certain topic. And so really the the chair and the ranking member, both their ideological positioning, but also their relationship and the relationship between their staffs can be critical in, um, in either creating a space where there will be a balanced witness panel with many different perspectives, or on the flip side, uh, a witness panel in which there is really just one minority witness there to promote the messaging of the minority party, and the rest of the witness panel is there in order to promote the messaging of the majority party. Th- these are the hearings that we frequently think about when we think about Congress, because that's what we see on television. But that's not all of the hearings, um, and there are many hearings in which there, you know, there, there are joint lists, there is a real space for deliberation, and again, reasoning through the many aspects of the issue, but that is more likely when there is a joint approach, a joint list, and the relationships that are really critical in order to be having those discussions and coming together as a committee to create a hearing, to create a witness panel, and to really set up the building blocks for a real deliberative conversation um, that that can happen uh, in, in committees, but that again is uh, is more likely when when the committee comes together in that way. Another thing that I found really interesting was one of the committees that I spoke to, uh, the minority and the majority had a, a good relationship. And they would approach the Congressional Research Service with a joint question before each hearing and uh, ask for kind of a joint report from the CRS that they could send to all the members and the staff to kind of prime them with the with the same neutral information before the hearing. Things like that really set the tone for the hearing to come and create the space for um, real reasoning through the different aspects and real openness to to alternatives. Over the past century, the power of committees has risen and it's fallen. Today, committees are not quite the powerhouses they were 50 years ago. In simplest terms, how is it that committees, these gaggles of 
legislators, how is it that their power can grow or shrink? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And I think that a, a number of factors shape the relative power of committees. In legislatures in general, parties and committees tend to act as competing organizing structures. And so historically, as well as internationally, we see that the power of the two is inversely correlated. During periods where power is concentrated in parties and party leadership, committees tend to be weaker and vice versa. And this is really the story that we've seen unfold over the last several decades in Congress. Party leaders and parties have usurped control and committees have lost power. And so I'd highlight a few kind of key events in that. And I think the story begins in the 1970s. I mean, it begins, uh, of course, uh, earlier on. Uh, but in terms of the loss of committee power, in the 1970s, we saw some key events. There was what's known as the Legislative Reorganization Act in 1970 that reduced the power of chairs. It increased the power of, of leadership in assigning chairs and, and slashing committee staff. Um, and these all hurt committee autonomy and committee power and uh, gave more power to the speaker. Uh, another key moment was in 1995, uh, Newt Gingrich comes to power as speaker and he doubles the number of votes of the party speaker on the steering committee, really increases the, the hold of party leadership on committee chairs, and he further cuts staff. So we've really seen a huge decline in the, the number of staff uh, that Congress relies on. Um, they have several thousand fewer staff than they did a few decades ago. And this loss of staff who are really key to helping committees specialize, along with the increasing grip of the speaker on chair selection, are really emblematic of this trend. So you have a stronger speaker in the House right now, and you have weaker, less autonomous, less specialized committees. And then we also see a similar trend in the Senate. So the, the Senate in the first half of the 20th century was known as a, a decentralized chamber in which parties struggled to maintain control. But deliberation really declined, and it declined in the second half of the 20th century because senators were struggling with a lot of committee assignments and with rising workload. And similar to the House, committees also lost staff relative to parties. So though the overall uh, level of Senate staff has remained uh, relatively similar, the number of staff working under the party, and I, I find this statistic really crucial in, in understanding the story, that the number of staff working under party leadership increased by 263% between 1977 and 2016. So again, we see the power flowing from committees to party leadership. And I think it's, it's interesting to end by noting that we are discussing this at a very interesting time in terms of this push and pull between party and party leadership and committees. We're at a very unique moment uh, with Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, coming to power. He's a speaker who faces the the threat of the motion to vacate. And he leads, as we've all uh, seen in the kind of strife leading up to the speaker vote, he leads a divided party. And in, in looking at this as a scholar of committees, I do wonder if this once again opens up some space for committees and committee leadership to reclaim some power because we see a weakening party leader and speaker and this might leave some space for another golden era for committees, but I guess we we will see how that unfolds. All righty. Well, before I close this off, I just wanted to get two quick things in. First, uh, 
in case it slipped by you, my dear listeners, you may be surprised to hear that there are fewer committee staff in the House of Representatives today than there were 40 years ago. And realizing that government has got much, much larger, uh, responsibilities have expanded, uh, this is not a great formula. Second point is that we've seen a breakdown, particularly in the House of Representatives, a breakdown of regular order. This is the sort of schoolhouse rock way of getting work done where a bill gets introduced and then it gets referred to committee and then the committee decides what to do with it and ultimately it may amend it and rework it but then it reports it out with some assumption that it has a decent chance at getting a vote well nowadays that's not the way things frequently work instead you have policy being made elsewhere frequently amongst leadership frequently with the House Rules Committee weighing in, drafts of bills being swapped in at the last moment that look different from the work product that may have come in, all of which can lead to a diminishment of committee strength. All right, we have reached our time. Dr. Maya Kornberg, thank you for helping us better understand congressional committees and what they do in Congress. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.